They say everyone has a great story burning inside them. How effective any one person is at telling that story is more debatable. I'm Rome. And I'm Caitlin. And welcome to A Couple of Notes. Each episode, we will read a book that we felt had an interesting premise and discuss how successful or unsuccessful the author was in their execution. As we do discuss every book in its entirety, watch out for spoilers. This month, we read And Then There Were None by Agatha Christie. This book was published in the 1930s. There's a blanket trigger warning for blatant racism, anti-Semitism, and sexism in this book. None of this is particularly relevant to the plot, but it is very prevalent and unavoidable. We will be discussing the many aspects of this book that, for a lack of a better phrase, have not aged well. And Then There Were None was first published in the UK in 1939, under another title that will not be repeated here. That title was deemed so offensive that when the book was released in the United States in the following year, the name was changed to And Then There Were None. The UK title would remain until 1985, when the title was changed to either Ten Little Indians or And Then There Were None, depending on the publishers. This title change also led to several rewrites in the text itself. And Then There Were None is the best-selling crime novel of all time, with more than 100 million copies sold. Publication International lists it as the sixth best-selling title of all time. The book has been adapted many times, boasting eight full-length movies, three plays, 14 television adaptations, technically 15 if you include the Family Guy parody, three video games, two radio broadcasts, a graphic novel, a board game, and an adult film. Agatha Christie herself is the single best-selling author of all time. Her 66 novels and 14 short story collections have amassed over 2 billion copies sold, though some estimates go as high as 4 billion. Before we begin our summary, a quick spoiler warning. This is a mystery, and we will be spoiling the ending. On an isolated island off the coast of Devon, eight people respond to a mysterious invitation. None of them know their host, Mr. U.N. Owen, although all assume they must know him somehow. At the island, the guests are met by a butler and a housekeeper, a married couple called Mr. and Mrs. Rogers. As each guest gets settled, they notice a children's nursery rhyme on their wall that describes ten children dying off one by one. Some also notice a diorama of ten figures in the main dining room as well. When everyone gathers for drinks in the parlor, a phonograph record causes a disturbance. A recorded voice methodically accuses each guest and Mr. and Mrs. Rogers, of murder, naming each of the accused and their victims. Our cast is as follows. Anthony James Marston, otherwise known as Tony Marston, an amoral and irresponsible young man who is accused of striking and killing two young children while speeding. Ethel Rogers, the cook-slash-housekeeper, and Thomas Rogers' wife, and Thomas Rogers, the butler, and Ethel Rogers' husband, this pair is accused of neglecting their elderly employer, withholding medical care from her, so that they could collect inheritance upon her death. General John Gordon MacArthur, a retired World War I war hero, after discovering his wife was having an affair with an officer under his command, he sent the man on a suicide mission. Emily Caroline Brent, an elderly, pious spinster and a religious fanatic, she turned out a woman in her employment after the maid became pregnant and the young woman subsequently committed suicide. Edward George Armstrong, a Harley Street doctor, caused the death of a patient operating while drunk. William Henry Bloor, a former police inspector, 
now a private investigator. He gave false evidence in court that led to an innocent man's conviction and death in prison. Philip Lombard, a mercenary, who left an entire group of East African men to die in the wilderness after he stole their food and supplies. A real son of a bitch, if you ask me. Vera Elizabeth Claythorne, a young woman on leave from her position as a sports mistress at a girls' school. When she was a nanny, she let the child she was watching drown because she wanted his uncle, her boyfriend, to get his inheritance and marry her. And Lawrence John Wargrave, Justice Wargrave, a retired criminal judge. He improperly influenced juries to convict a man many thought was innocent and sentenced him to death. Immediately after the record plays, everyone becomes suspicious of each other. Some defend themselves while others freely admit to their murders. Then, Anthony Marsden dies, and everything goes crazy. Dr. Armstrong determines the cause of death as poison slipped into Marsden's drink. At this point, no one suspects the two events, the record and the poison, to be related. This changes the next morning when Mrs. Rogers is found dead in her bed. Everyone runs around searching the island for a murderer and accusing each other, and by lunchtime, General MacArthur is also dead from a blow to the head. But there is no boat to get them off this island, so everyone has to just wait. Despite being quite certain there is a murderer on this island, Mr. Rogers is expected to continue being a butler, and covering his dead wife's duties too now. That means he has to go out in the morning and chop some wood for the stove, and he gets killed doing that. Old Mrs. Brent also dies from a needle to the neck. Now with half of them dead, Judge Wargrave suggests a little detective work. Unfortunately, all they are able to determine as they break down their alibis, means, and motives is that the only people who can be exonerated are the dead. They decide the plan now is that they will all stick together to keep an eye on each other, and everyone will search each other for weapons. Vera immediately breaks off from the group, becomes spooked, and causes a ruckus. Everyone gets split up, and within about five minutes of making the no-one-goes-anywhere-alone rule, Judge Wargrave has been shot. The remaining four survivors lock themselves away in their bedrooms. Officer Bloor sees someone leaving the mansion in the middle of the night and alerts the others, but Dr. Armstrong is missing. He will later be found drowned on the shore. A clock falls on Inspector Bloor's head, and then there were two. Lombard, the mercenary, and Vera, the governess, are now both sure that the other is the murderer. But Vera uses her feminine charms to get Lombard's gun away from him and shoots him. This whole experience leaves Vera feeling deeply traumatized, and when she goes inside and finds a noose hanging in her bedroom, she decides, why not, and hangs herself. When baffled police officers arrive on the island of the dead, they have no idea what to make of the scene. Thankfully, our killer left a little message in the bottle to let us know exactly how he did it. Final warning, this is the part where I tell you exactly who did it and how. Judge Wargrave has always had two deeply conflicting desires. The desire for justice and the desire to commit murder. For much of his life, he satisfied his bloodlust with the joy of sentencing criminals to death. But now he found out he's dying, so he wants to experience murder for real life. He chose each of these victims because they were people who committed murders the law could not touch, being the cause of death of another person in a way that was either not criminal or unable to be proven. He faked his gunshot death by tricking Dr. Armstrong into thinking he was going to do some sleuthing, so Dr. Armstrong would say, yes, he's dead. Then he killed Armstrong. 
And after he was believed dead, he was able to run around and mess with the people all he wanted. Then he wrote his confession in a bottle in the sea and shot himself for real. Now that we've covered the bones of our story, we'll go over our notes. But first, a quick ad break. Welcome back. Let's talk about some initial thoughts. So this is the second Agatha Christie I read last month. The first one was Death in the Clouds, which was one of the Hercules Parole novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the one in the plane. Yes, the one in the plane. I think it was number 12, but you don't have to read them in order. Mm -hmm. And that one I thought was good, but it didn't really vibe with me. Like, I just wasn't that interested. But this one, this one I had so much fun with. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, there, there are a few points in the story that do detract from my overall enjoyment. But the mystery itself, I was very impressed with. I agree. I actually really did enjoy the mystery of this, especially because I called the judge being the baddie, like, halfway through. And then right after I started to be like, it's him, he's the one, then he faked his death. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's one thing for someone to fake their death by poison or something, but, like, he got shot in the head. And the doctor said, yeah, he got shot in the head. So... Here I am thinking, oh, well, I guess I was wrong. And I like it when they bait and switch you like that. I know. And I guess you could probably expect, since this is the number one selling mystery in the world, that it would be good. Mm -hmm. But, you know, popularity can be very misleading, as we have experienced <laughs> many times on this podcast. That is true. <laughs> so I was very pleased by how much fun I had reading this book. Mm -hmm. We'll go over our positives first. We already talked about how the mystery, in general, is really, really good. It is. It keeps you guessing. Every time you think it's that person, they die. Mm hmm Like, routinely. Until, like, we get down to the police report, and we haven't found out who the killer is yet. And I'm like, is she actually not going to tell us who the killer is? Mm hmm And that does make the final chapter, when Justice Wargrave, like, tells us in his little letter what, what he did and how he did it and why he did it and everything really satisfying because sometimes that you know and this is how i did it moment in a mystery novel can be really like anticlimactic anticlimactic exactly sometimes it can be a little annoying even because you've got this villain who's like monologuing and it's like oh look at me i'm so smart and you're like oh my god stop talking but in this case it really brought it all together and there were all these clues that you were like oh oh, oh, and it's it's not just him explaining how he did everything, but it's also Agatha Christie through him explaining to you, like, hey, if you go back and read the story again, here are some clues you could pick up on mm -hmm. that could help you solve the mystery. Yeah, and so, like, I was surprised that that final chapter was as satisfying as it was, because it is basically the author telling you who the killer is and why they did it. But... It was satisfying. I was very impressed. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, just like Justice Wargrave in general, his narrative voice, he's genuinely sinister. And mm -hmm. I appreciated that. He was. There's something unsettling about him the whole time. Yeah, he freaked me out. I didn't like him. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I liked him as a character, but, like, I wouldn't want to be in a room with him. Mm -hmm. No one was ever properly eliminated as a suspect until the characters died. And so partway through the story, I started thinking to myself, what if it is one of the dead, or presumably dead, victims who's faked their own death? 
And so even though I wasn't convinced it was Wargrave, I was kind of like, aha, I did kind of think that was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, the book doesn't make you feel stupid for not figuring out the mystery, but it does make you feel really smart for the clues you do catch. Yes. Which I always appreciate it, because sometimes there's a mystery where, like, it gets to the end, and if you didn't figure out the twist already, it kind of talks down to you and is like, oh, well, you're kind of an idiot if you didn't see this already. And then at the other times, there's mysteries where, like, you see the twists coming a mile away, and you're like, yeah, I get it, the butler did it, like... <laughs> Points for the butler not doing it. Yeah. <laughs> you suspected him at one point. I did. I did suspect the butler. You know, he he was very quiet in his movements. He snuck around real good. Mm -hmm. He was also the one who was, like, the most unaccounted for most of the time. Because they, like, made him keep doing his job. They did. They Even did. after his wife died. His wife has died. They're all under threat. And it's like, well, I guess you have two jobs now, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> Poor you. <laughs> Classism will not be set aside for the sake of preserving our lives. Yeah. Like, they even have the audacity to complain about what he serves them for lunch after his wife dies. <laughs> I know. It's like, I'm sorry, my wife is dead. I woke up this morning next to a dead body. I'm sorry if I'm not pulling out all the stops for lunch today. <laughs> like, you're getting sandwiches. And that leads into another point. Which I might go on a bit of a tangent about, but all of these characters are murderers. Mm -hmm. So you don't really necessarily root for any of them. And sometimes I feel like that doesn't work. Yeah. Sometimes if I don't care about the characters, then I don't have an investment in the story. But the whodunit was such a big part of it that I was just kind of like rubbing my hands together maniacally while these killers got systematically picked off. And it kind of gave me the same satisfaction as watching a Saw movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's a sick kind of satisfaction that bad people got killed and they were really stressed out while it happened. Yeah. But I would be lying if I didn't say that that wasn't fun for me. Yeah. And I also enjoy that, like, each person who's committed a murder, their murders are... Different both in means and motivation, and also in how they feel about their murders. Like, you've got Philip Lombard, for example, who, no question about it, like, he left a whole group of men to certain death. He was like, goodbye, enjoy dying, I'm saving my own skin, see you later. And he feels no remorse about it whatsoever. And so, like, when he dies, you're like, yeah, get him. Like, you want him to die so bad. I know. I was and, happy when Vera shot him. Mm -hmm. And then, conversely, you've got people like Emily Brent, who doesn't see herself as responsible for this death at all. In her mind, she did absolutely nothing wrong in turning out this woman who had worked for her for years with no reference, with no money, pregnant on the street turning her away when she begged for help. She does not believe she did anything wrong. As far as she's concerned, that was her duty as a Christian to turn away this slut. And so it's equally satisfying to watch her die because while you would probably comfort her in most situations and be like, no, old lady, it's not your fault that like you couldn't prevent a suicide in this case, you look at her and like, no, no, this was your fault, like, a little bit at least. Mm -hmm. Like, you didn't kill her with your own two hands, but this was your fault. Yeah. And that's kind of the way it is with all of these people. 
the more culpable they are in the death, the less bad they feel about it. Mm-hmm. And the only character that you have that's, like, arguably, like, decidedly guilty, like, they caused a death, and also feels bad about it, is Vera. Mm -hmm. Which then makes it all the more reasonable why she is the last one, and why she is the cause of her own death in the end. Mm -hmm. Because she arguably committed the most heinous crime. She killed a child that was left in her care. For money. <laughs> for money. Yeah, for money and for a man. And she feels horrible, horrible guilt about it. And so she should. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, though, if she would have felt so much guilt about it if the man had been into it. Because she's kind of the cause of all of this, because her boyfriend told Justice Wargrave about what she'd done. That's true. That was how Justice Wargrave first, like, got this idea in his mind. Because he spoke to the boyfriend while they were, like, traveling together. They met up in, I can't remember if it was a cruise or a train car, but they met up while traveling and they got drunk and they were chatting and the boyfriend was like, yeah, you ever think, you know, being a judge about, like, all the people who kill someone and the law can't touch them? Like, I had a girlfriend once who definitely killed my nephew, but, you know, she was found innocent. And Judge Wargrave was like, now that's a clever idea. So yeah, in the end, like, not only is she the most guilty of all these murderers, but also this is all kind of her fault in a weird roundabout sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was a really good cast we got. There was a lot of variety, both in what they've done and how they felt about it. And I think that made for a better overall experience. Yeah. And I like that in the final chapter they even explain, like, how Justice Wargrave found each of them. Mm-hmm. How he identified each individual person as a target. Mm-hmm. There's even something we didn't mention in the summary, but it's even, like, how he got a hold of this island in the first place. And how there was another victim in all of this that was this drug trafficker that he, like, got his hands on and got to buy this island for him and then killed him before this ever started. Mm-hmm who, like, we never see on page, but he's mentioned in the final chapter. And the police kind of consider him a suspect for a while. And I just like that every every loose end is tied together in the last chapter, and that's always very satisfying. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's why you should pick up the book. Now get out your red pins. And let's edit. And let's edit. Okay, <laughs> we can't avoid talking about this any longer. <laughs> yeah, okay, Um. so remember how we said that this book had a previous title that we weren't going to repeat? So I'm not going to repeat it because I don't say that word. But you can look it up. Before this book was called Ten Little Indians, it was called Ten Little N-Word. Allegedly, allegedly, that word did not hold the same connotations in the UK in the 1930s and 40s when this book came out. I find that pretty sus. <laughs> yeah, I call bullshit on that because, I mean, the American audiences knew better than to publish that. But by extent, that means when you read this book, if you read it in its current form of and then there were none. It's most recent publication. 
they use the word soldiers. The poem that is used that kind of plays into this whole plot is Ten Little Soldier Boys, which if you've ever heard the poem Ten Little Soldier Boys or Ten Little Indians or whatever. Or the original. Or the original. The word. There's lots of different varieties of it, but they all have the same, you know, story, which is ten little boys of some kind go out one day and they subsequently die in many different varieties until there are none of them. It's a counting rhyme. It's morbid and it's horrible, but it's kind of supposed to be for children. In the most modern version, it's Ten Little Soldier Boys. And so every time they say that poem, they say soldier boys. Every time they talk about the figurines, they say soldiers. The name of the island is Soldier Island. If you read Ten Little Indians, the word Indian is used every time. And they are using Indian to mean Native Americans or Indigenous Americans. That's, I'm not even going to touch on that that much because how appropriate that term is. Different people have different opinions on that, and it's not for me as a white person to speak. But the point is it's still racist because <laughs> it's, it's a racist poem. It's about people that die off easily. Yeah. Because of their ethnicity. Yeah, and because of being stupid. But yeah. the point is, in the very original text, every time the word soldier is used in the new text... It's the N-word. The island is N-word island. And so on. And even though we read the newest text where the word soldier is used, it can be deeply, deeply uncomfortable reading the book and knowing that that's what was originally there. Yeah, it, it's so many times that this was truly shocking. Mm -hmm. Even in the 30s that this got published. Yeah. And it's, that's not the only racism that's present in this book. No, there's more. <laughs> there's more. And the thing is, like, that is the only racism that doesn't seem to question itself. Because, like, it's there. It's constantly there. And it's even referenced in, like, people's reviews of this book as saying that, like, the decision to name the island that word is meant to evoke a sense of mysticism and darkness and, you know, separation from society, which is all just kinds of really fucked up and white supremacist colonialism bullshit. But the point is, it's kind of weird the way racism and other kinds of prejudice are incorporated into this book, because there are times when I believe Agatha Christie meant for us to question the racism present. For example, with the character of Lombard, when he talks about how it was totally fine for him to leave all those men to die because natives don't mind dying. They don't feel about it like Europeans do. Direct quote. Actual quote. And the other characters are horrified, and rightfully so. And he is killed for doing this. Yeah. So you'd think that would mean to indicate that racism is pretty horrific and wrong. Mm-hmm. But to also then go on and use the N-word as a cheap way to scare the viewer by playing into the racist sentiments of the time, it's, it just goes the other way. It's confusing. Yeah, it's, it's very, very uncomfortable. And I feel like it's something that needs to be discussed when talking about this book, because even though it has been rewritten now... 
and that word is no longer present. Like, I feel like we still need to acknowledge that it was there. Yeah, I and think... And that this was an element. <laughs> yeah, the history of racism behind the publication of this book needs to be addressed. Yeah, and a lot of the foreign language texts, a lot of the translations and adaptations in other languages besides English still use that original text. They sometimes use words like negras, nigras, negros, things like that, and other variations of that. It's not using the slur, but they tend to translate it to 10 little black boys. Mm -hmm. So it's worth noting that even in foreign translations where the slur is not used, the sentiment, the sentiment is used. The idea of black as being foreign and frightening is used. Mm -hmm. And that continues into modern day adaptations. And even modern-day English adaptations still use a lot of the Ten Little Indians, again pushing the idea that non-white is scary. Mm -hmm. And that really needed to be addressed before we went any further with this review. Yeah, like, it, it's not subtle. The racism in this book is pretty brazen and in your face. Yeah. And can I also mention, And Then There Were None is a much better title. Yeah. Just like it's more ominous. It is. It's a, it's it a sounds part. better. <laughs> yeah. And also, I kind of like Tin Little Soldier Boys better because, I mean, yeah, there's obviously a distinction between soldier boys and murderers, but the idea that they're in a combat zone and they don't even know it plays to the overall themes of the book. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the newer edited version just reads better for multiple reasons. <laughs> yeah. So, um, if you're going to read this book, I highly recommend seeking out the American and Then There Were None version, which is also currently the only version offered by Agatha Christie's living estate. Mm -hmm. Her Her relatives and her living estate do not publish this book under either of the old titles anymore. If you find it under the old titles, it is either an old edition or it is printed without the permission of her estate. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna read this book, I suggest trying to find the one printed by her original estate that has edited itself. <laughs> mm -hmm. So other elements of this book that make it very much a product of its time for starters, they use the word queer in this book a lot. And of course, it was 1939. The word queer had a very different connotation. It did not mean gay. But it makes it very hilarious to read at times. I found this exact same experience reading other books written from this time period. It's so funny. Yeah, like at one point when they think Marston killed himself, Detective Bloor describes it as, ah, suicide. A queer go. <laughs> or, at another point, they they believe a man is suspicious, and so they describe him as, he's a queer fellow, not straight. <laughs> yeah, There's other words, too, that have changed over time that are unintentionally funny. For example, I guess during this time, the word ejaculate meant to yell. 
Oh yeah. So we read all these classics and people are ejaculating all over the place. There yes, there are several moments in which the the male characters in here will ejaculate. <laughs> um, yeah, and so you you kind of have to just like adjust your reading for the time period. But at the very least those are hateful moments. Those are just moments where you have to be like, right, right. Different meanings, different meanings of words. Mhm. This book does also have a healthy dose of, dose of sexism, but unlike the racism, it does feel like the sexism is looked at more inwardly, like Agatha Christie wants you to question it, which I think does come a lot from the fact that Agatha Christie herself was a woman defying norms of her time. Yeah, like, for example, Vera is the sole survivor. Mm-hmm. But she also gets slapped for, quote, being hysterical. Oh, yeah, I remember that. So, like, it's there, but I think we're supposed to question it. Yeah. And And there are moments where we're supposed to question the racism, too, but it was more consistent for the sexism. Yeah, like, even the fact that, you know, you mentioned Vera is the final survivor, but also throughout most of the early events of this book, all of the men are really big about, like, let's not tell the women the details of what's going on. Because their poor, fragile little lady hearts can't take it. They'll just die. You know, and they slap Vera for being hysterical whenever she's having a perfectly normal reaction to people dying all around her. And things like that. And then, of course, in the end, she is the final survivor. And she's the final survivor because she kills off a trained mercenary (laughs) who has killed men before. And she does it, in part, by playing to his false belief that because she is a woman, she is sentimental and weak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's like, okay, we can fight, but, like, help me move this body first. And he's like, fine, women. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, she took my gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then there's also moments where, like, like, Lombard at one point says that he's almost definite that Mr. Rogers killed his own wife, because in his mind, quote, wife murder is natural. Like, it's just totally normal for men to kill their wives. Which, he's not wrong in the sense of, like, if anyone on this island was going to kill a woman, the first person you should look at should be her husband. But also just the way he says it, he's like, wife murder is to be expected and even natural. (laughs) Like, sir? (laughs) Are you married? I hope not. (laughs) If you say you're a widower, I'm going to be very concerned. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Armstrong also, the doctor, he makes a point about, very early on in the book, about how he hates seeing female patients because he doesn't believe anything they tell him. He believes that women just go to the doctor because they, you know, they're bored. And they just are looking for something to do. So they go to the doctor to panic about things. And he doesn't take their pain or their symptoms seriously. And it's just little things like that that, like, they're mentioned and they feel very real in the moment, but at least you get the vibe that, like, you're supposed to know that they're bad. But I do wonder sometimes if people reading it when it was written saw it that way. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where you kind of have to guess at the author's intentions when it comes to some of that stuff. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, these people are all murderers and they're all bad people. So you kind of have to assume that everything they say is morally reprehensible. Yeah. But at the same time, like, you can't know how much of this stuff was she writing for the purpose of saying 
this is morally reprehensible and these people are morally reprehensible and that's why they say these things versus how much was she writing being like, yeah, no, wife murder, totally natural. Mm-hmm. And things like that. Yeah. My last note was something that's bothered me about the prior Agatha Christie book that I read. And I'm starting to think this is just how she begins her books. But all of the characters are introduced very quickly all at once while switching to each of their POVs rapidly. And there are 10 of them. So the first few chapters are pretty rough because I cannot remember who everybody is and it's easy to get lost. I think it would be a lot easier on a reread, but that's just been somewhat of a consistent problem I've had with Agatha Christie's novels. It takes a while to get into them because it takes a while to figure out who these people are. Yeah, and I have to assume that is something she does often because I've noticed, while I haven't read these books yet, they're on my TBR, in the film adaptations of Death on the Nile and Murder on the Orient Express, they do a visual version of this where they very rapidly pop you through each of the characters in like a single long shot as they introduce them. And like even trailers for the new one, Murder in Venice or Haunting in Venice, that's the one, Haunting in Venice, you know, they introduce the characters in the trailer with like just their archetype names, you know, the medium, the heiress, the this, the that. And that is kind of how it becomes easiest to remember who these characters are. Like I did not learn most of these characters' names until half the cast was dead. I remember them as the butler, the doctor, the judge, the old woman. Yeah, and I agree. I think I think for me, it's easier in a visual medium to show all the characters like that and then just get to know them slowly over time. But when you're popping into their head for a paragraph or two and then meeting someone else's perspective, it's just it was a lot in the first chapter. You have to pay a lot of attention to it and maybe even break out a notepad to know what the heck is going on. Yeah, also in the visual medium, you can remember them based on like their faces. Like, okay, he's got a stethoscope around his neck. That's the doctor. He's wearing the the little monkey suit. That's the butler. And so even if you don't remember their names, you can remember their archetypes of how they fit in. Or you can remember like the actors who's playing them. Like, oh, it's the guy with the funny mustache. You know, oh, that's Johnny Depp over there. <laughs> Things like that. Whereas in this, you have to remember their names because you can't count on them always being referred to as inspector this and doctor that and justice this. They're usually just referred to by their last names. So until you've gotten to know them a little bit better, it can be hard to remember like, okay, wait, Lombard, who is he? Is he the, is he the soldier? No, no, he's the mercenary. Which like the soldier and the mercenary, what's the freaking difference? Like, Yeah. And like... Normally, I would critique using 10 different POVs, mm -hmm. but I think it did work for this book. It was just, the switching between them was so rapid in the first chapter mm -hmm. that I was shaken. <laughs> yeah, and it's always third-person POV, so it's not like you're switching first-person to being like, I this, I that, and you have to remember who I is. But it is very third-person omniscient, and it does get a little like, woo. Yeah, like you're bopping around, you're just getting used to being in someone's head and remembering what their name is, and suddenly you're with someone totally different, and you don't know who they are. It's a lot to keep track of on a first read-through. But, you know, I did actually enjoy getting a little bit closer to each of the characters, and I think I would enjoy this book more on a reread. Yeah, I would definitely reread this. Like, it's it's a good reread. Mm -hmm. Alright, final thoughts. 
Alright, for me, this book is clearly a product of its time, and that doesn't excuse the abundance of prejudice in the text, and I don't believe I would have been able to get through the story if it wasn't its original, unedited version. But that said, the mystery itself was a ton of fun. It kept me guessing who the killer was all the way up to the final chapter. This was my second Agatha Christie novel, and I will be reading more, probably Murder on the Orient Express next. Yeah, I agree. You really do have to approach this book as a time capsule. You have to acknowledge when it was written and acknowledge that it is going to contain material that is going to be offensive. And you do have to sort of approach it with a death of the author idea and just accept that if it was written now, you hope the author would do better. And once you separate that and you say, okay, this is the problematic elements, these are the parts that were typical for the time, but I need to set them aside, and you look at it as a mystery story, as a mystery, it is great. If you want a mystery without those problematic elements, there are others out there. But if it is something you can look past and you can recognize it for what it is in its time, it is a genre-defining book, and it is a very well-written mystery. And it is very enjoyable to read if you can get past the problematic moments. So for me, it's a four out of five. The time period in which it was written and the elements that come along with that detract a little, but overall, still an enjoyable read. I agree. I'll give it 4.5 stars. As always, our ratings are subjective. You can give us your notes on Twitter at Couple of Notes, on Instagram and threads at Couple of Notes Podcast with underscores in between each word, and on TikTok at Couple of Notes Podcast with no underscores. You can also support us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash couple of notes, where we will be releasing our first Patreon bonus episode soon. And remember to give us a five-star rating on whichever podcast platform you're listening to this on. Thank you for listening, and we will meet back here after the next chapter. chapter.